Hello and welcome to Uniquely Issaquah, a podcast about the people, places, and things that make Issaquah unique. I'm your host, Timothy Smith, and joining us again is Erica Manez, the director of Issaquah's History Museums, for part two of Issaquah's History. Welcome back, Erica. Thanks a lot, Tim. Uh, in part one, we left off just after the coal boom, and that uh, kind of brings us in the early 1900s time frame, mm-hmm. I, as I remember. So I guess we should just kind of pick up where we left off in the story. Sure. All so. right. So so when last we left our little town of Issaquah, um, it was around 1925, and so the last um, major operating uh, coal mine, the Grand Ridge Mine, had just closed down. So for people who lived here who'd been involved in the coal mining industry, they had to decide whether they wanted to stay here in Issaquah with their roots and find something else to do to make money, or they had to move somewhere else uh, where coal mining was still happening. So a lot of people moved down to Centralia um, after that. And so the town sort of settled into this this um, middle period between the coal boom and then the uh, the post-World War II population boom, where the population of Issaquah really kind of wavered in between about 700 and about 900 people. That's between about 1920 and 1945. So this is a really interesting time period in Issaquah's past because the town sort of pulled in on itself and became very tight-knit. Um, there weren't a ton of reasons to move to Issaquah. There weren't the coal mines to go work in anymore, so there wasn't a huge draw. Mm-hmm. So the the number of people moving in and out of the community was fair, fairly small. Less so transient. Was, yeah. You know, like before you'd get somebody to come work the mines, and then once it was done, they'd move out, right. that sort of thing. Or yeah. when, when it was booming, we'd come in, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So things kind of reached a real stasis um, in that time period. Um, and the two major... Uh, jobs that people had or the two major occupations were dairy farming um, and logging and working in lumber mills. So logging and lumber mill work had been pretty common on the east side since 1889. So that was sort of the root of the uh, the east side um, logging and lumber industry. Why 1889? Well, that was the year that they had the Great Fire in Seattle. So uh, the first white settlers arrived in Seattle in the 1850s, 1860s. And so Seattle Part 1, Version 1, was all built out of lumber that was nearby. Mm -hmm. After the city burned and they had to go back and do a lot of rebuilding, of course, they used all the lumber that was nearby and they had to go farther afield. So that's when um, more widespread logging started happening over on the east side. Mm -hmm. And some of the small communities in our area, like High Point, Preston, um, Monahan, which actually no longer exists, all of those little towns grew up around mills or uh, logging operations. During that time period. But Issaquah wasn't really, that wasn't its focus. It was coal, right? Well, that, it, that or was no? mostly, it's, I would say if it weren't for the coal, Issaquah would have been known for its and logging. Yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was fairly widespread. It just wasn't... Um, it wasn't the hot commodity that coal was. Mm. It's sort of like, I don't know, I guess it'd be kind of like comparing um, logging and lumber to gas and oil today. There's right. still a lot of logging and lumbering. We know about it. We know mm. it's important. But it's not as um, as connected to our, our daily life in the way that, that right. gasoline is. I mean, mm. we need it to get to work. And, mm-hmm. and so it was sort of similar, um, I think, comparing coal to, to uh, logging and lumber. Okay. <clears throat> so... So uh, the interesting thing about logging and lumber is that there are 
dozens of different jobs you could have. Um, you might have worked at a shim shingle mill or a planing mill, and those might have been down in town or you know near civilization. Um, or you might have worked up in a logging camp. So uh, there were logging camps up in the woods, kind of all over the area. One of the biggest was the Wood and Iverson operations, and those were over on Tiger Mountain. Um, and well, here's one of your the little known historic facts. Uh, there's the name for the, the place where the parasailers go um, sailing off. It's Poo Poo Point. Right. And there are a lot of questions about why that. Right, that I've always wondered. Given. Yeah, I've well, always wondered. It's actually <laughs> fairly contemporary. I think the name was given by Harvey Manning in the 80s, but okay. the, the Poo Poo in question is the sound that the steam whistle makes, going Poo Poo. Mm-hmm. And that's what you would hear up in these. The steam camps. whistle from the steam donkey. Oh, the steam donkey. Yeah. So, so steam donkeys are sort of hard to explain verbally, but I'll try. Mm-hmm. And I'd encourage anybody who's curious about what a steam donkey actually looks like to go check out the one um, outside the depot. Um, there's also one in an enclosure over by the trails house. So these were big steam-driven machines that basically were used to pull large logs into a central point so that then they could be loaded on um, on rail cars and sent down to uh, a depot or somewhere no. else to send So it was just out. a machine way of, mo- you know, you chop down right. a tree, it's on the side of a mountain, you got to get it up, so right. it was a way to pull it and get it. You know, right. I see that. So the name Hoopoo Point came from uh, the sound that these steam donkeys would make. So they were steam-powered, so the whistle sounded just like a train whistle, boo-poo. And the whistle was used to warn um, the guys that were working that the steam donkey was getting ready to fire up. Uh, So there was a kid that would sit up on top of the steam donkey, and it was his job to look around and make sure everything was clear before he turned it on. And he would send the whist- sound the whistle to let everybody know that they had to get out of the way. So you could hear this, probably hear it throughout the valley. Yeah. So yeah. all day you'd hear poo poo, mm-hmm. and that's the name poo poo right. point. Yeah, that's right. pretty. That's interesting. That's good. Yeah. I was always curious because it was an odd name. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's that's one thing that uh, the kids always ask about because mm-hmm. the first their first guess is that it's scatological. Yes, yes, it has something to do with so restroom very, activity. Very, very disappointing <laughs> to them. <laughs> But a good, but a probably a history fact they won't forget because right. it <laughs> logs into their heads. Yeah, while, so. yeah, it's like uh, it's like showing them the jail and and every they always want to know where they had to go to the bathroom and then you get to explain chamber pots. Oh. And that's always a big <laughs> horrifying, that's the grossest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> that's yeah. right. It's so funny we realize how sanitized we've become as a culture and how used to pretty smells and things mm-hmm. we are. I, I'll show kids old-fashioned soap that's handmade. Mm-hmm. It just smells like lye. And they right. think that's the most disgusting thing mm-hmm. ever. It's just, <laughs> so funny. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, so in addition to lumber and logging, the other main uh, the other main occupation was dairy farming. So there are a number of, of dairy farms uh, in the area, and if you weren't working in lumber and logging and you weren't working on a dairy farm, chances were good that you were working at the Alpine Dairy. So the Alpine Dairy actually started out in 1909 with a different name, um, and today, of course, it has become Dairy Gold. Um, but for a time period in between, it was the Alpine Dairy, and it was one of the biggest employers in town. Mm-hmm. And they did a lot of um, sponsorship, a lot of team sponsorships. And uh, one of the one of the biggest things they did was to support and sponsor the Alpine Dairy football team. Mm-hmm. 
which we'll have to talk about at some point. <laughs> these guys were amazing. Um, and the Alpine Dairy supplied them with uh, with uniforms, and I think they helped put lights on over in the field and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So Alpine Dairy was sort of the one of the biggest employers. So if you were going to work for a company, that's right. pretty much who you worked for. Mm-hmm. So. In this intervening time period, when you don't have a lot of people moving in and out, mm-hmm. you've got a group of, you know, well, it's 700 people, maybe 50 different families, maybe more, maybe less. Right. But everybody eventually is connected to each other by some tie, mm-hmm. whether it's marriage or... Um, Employment of some sort. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody... Well, if you think about it, if you, uh, I went to a high school where there were 127 people in my graduating class, mm-hmm. so I knew every single person, right? You know, and and maybe I didn't talk to them, but I kind of knew who their parents were, mm-hmm. and you know, you kind of had that context for everybody. Yeah. So that was what it was like living in Issaquah. When you think about it, say a thousand people, mm-hmm. that's not too many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of us have that many, you know, friends on our Facebook pages. Right, right. So, so a thousand people. What time frame are we in right now? We're like. Um, that's pretty much from from about 1920 up until mm, probably the mid 50s. In in the early 50s, it finally hit a thousand, but it actually went back and forth, kind of between 700 and a thousand there for about 25, 35 years. So basically, for a generation, yes. Issaquah was just a small knit yeah. agricultural town, mm-hmm. basically, with fits mm-hmm. and starts of logging. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And nothing's changing. It's just kind of like a small little town. Yeah. Takes and you how long to get to Seattle? Uh, well this was before the bridge so you were still um so this is another interesting Mm -hmm. thing that happened in 1925 um there stopped being passenger service from the depot Um, so the train still went through town Mm -hmm. they would still stop and you could load and unload freight Mm -hmm. but by that time period um, cars were starting to become more widespread Mm -hmm. so that's not to say that an average family would have had a car in their driveway right but um it was possible if you had a lot of money to purchase a car. Mm-hmm. And if you were an enterprising businessman, you could purchase a large car and you could establish some kind of mass transit. Okay. So that's what they did. They would have these huge cars mm-hmm. and they called them auto stages. Mm-hmm. So kind of a takeoff from the stagecoach stage because yeah, you were still traveling in stages. Mm-hmm. So you could pick up one of these auto stages. There were two different places downtown in Issaquah that you could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had two different departures and two different arrivals daily. If you took the train, there was one departure, one arrival. If you took the, the auto stage, it was actually cheaper and slightly shorter than taking the train. Oh, okay. Um, you did have to do some transferring. So you'd get on the auto stage in downtown Issaquah, mm-hmm. and that would take you to the Newport Ferry Landing, which is roughly where the Factoria Mall is today. Okay. So only farther out and mm-hmm. actually on the water. And so then people would hop off the auto stage. They'd mm-hmm. get on a ferry boat that would take them across the lake, and they would get off in Leshy. Okay. Okay. Which is a little south of downtown mm-hmm. Seattle. And were those little, little small ferries, like the mos- what yeah, was that, mosquito, mosquito fleet, fleet type yeah, of thing? Yeah, okay, probably yeah. something of that size. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then you'd hop on a, um, a streetcar and be in downtown Seattle. So, so in the ni- less mid- than two hours. Wow, that's pretty impressive. It in the is. 1920s, you're yeah. saying that basically uh, you so, – so the person who ran the stage – 
uh, not stagecoach, the, the auto stage, the auto yeah. stage excuse mm-hmm. me. So it was just, it was just a, a person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the people that ran the ferry was just a person, right? Mm-hmm. So these were all like independent contractors. Pretty much. But yeah. they had formed some sort of loose yeah. um, form of, of uh-huh. transit from the east side to Seattle. Uh-huh. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is very interesting to look at how people got around then because mm-hmm. they weren't, um, you know, they weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, municipal you know municipally driven right right you know so i mean you you know you had to count on them showing up Mm -hmm. right but uh it's it's yeah that's that's interesting that it would only take about two little or two hours to get from Issaquah to seattle in the 1920s yeah it's pretty pretty slick actually so well it's as and there are many times when i'm driving across the bridge when i have to think about what the amount of time it would have taken in 1940 right after the bridge opened right sure many of us who commute over the bridge would be (laughs) <laughs> horrified and also inspired yes yeah <laughs> at the same time <laughs> so um so and i think the thing kind of getting back to what i was talking about with small communities mm-hmm. and getting to know everybody i've heard this from people who grew up kind of in that time period they'll say you know you couldn't you couldn't misbehave or you know you couldn't sass somebody on the street because mm-hmm. before by the time you got home your mom would know about it oh they yeah knew exactly who you were and where mm-hmm. to call mm-hmm. um somebody else told me once a story about how they just moved to the community and somebody they they were complaining to a neighbor about um a, a repair person or something well of course the neighbor was related to the repair person and they got very <laughs> offended. so that was the kind of thing you had to be really careful what you said to who because right Really, you know, everyone was related to everybody. Yeah, it was a true case of Mayberry. Oh, you yeah, know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't say that in a in a weird way that you know, oh, it's what was a bunch of thin breeds. But mm-hmm. but um, when you start tracing people's in law relationships and cousin relationships, mm-hmm. and um, people did divorce and get remarried. There's mm-hmm. we have this idea that you know everything was perfect before the '60s and nobody got divorced, but Divorce was relatively common. Okay. Um, I'm. I am. I used to be surprised at the number of people I was researching who I would find had second and third marriages. Hmm. Um, and now it really doesn't surprise me that much anymore. Uh, you know, people died. Marriage right. was different. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. So multiple marriages and step siblings and stuff were. We're much more common, I think, than we tend to assume now. Right, right. You think back then, you know, the nuclear families just stayed together no matter what. Right. Through better or worse. Yeah. Worse, you know. But it sounds like there was some sort of divorcing. Oh, yeah. You know. But we were the Wild West, so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and even, if, even after you did divorce somebody in a town like Issaquah, you were still going to bump into them. True. So mm-hmm. you had to figure out kind of how you were going to negotiate that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And... Yeah, it is interesting. I, mm-hmm. I often wonder. I've heard it's something that people are kind of sensitive to talking about, so mm-hmm. it's difficult to get, you know, information about it. Hey, why don't you tell me about the most painful period in your family's past, you know, when right. you got divorced. Mm-hmm. If you got divorced from somebody in town, you were probably going to continue to bump into them and see them, so you mm-hmm. kind of had to figure out how you were going to deal with that. But that that could get really problematic for some for some people, and that's when the whole tiny-knit community thing can work against you. Because I know of at least one um, situation involved with uh, um, city government where a person who was involved in, in the town government at that time was going through a messy divorce, and uh, the family of his ex-wife was very angry, and he basically decided that he needed to step off the council and move 
a little farther out of town just because it was getting it was too turbulent. Right. So those kinds of things um, did make much bigger waves in Issaquah. Something mm-hmm. that would cause a small, you know, a small scandal or small rift in a larger city could be a really big deal here because everybody did know everybody so well. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a and that lasted for a long time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So what changed it? Well, I mean, why why did we why did Issaquah go from one thousand people to um, start increasing in population? Yeah, well, the story of Issaquah has always sort of been about a combination of um, transportation and then what that transportation makes possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with uh, in the case of Issaquah. Um, it was the construction of Highway 10 and the opening of the first bridge over um, Lake Washington. Mm-hmm. So that is what really opened Issaquah up to being a place that you could live in and commute to Seattle back and forth. Okay. Uh, so, so the 1940 census just became available about three years ago. They, they hold on to those for 72 years and then they release them. Mm-hmm. So when the 1940 census was released, it was interesting to be able to look at this, this period in Issaquah because this is before the bridge, right before the bridge, right before World War II, mm-hmm. and right before a lot of other stuff started changing. And I think my assumption had always sort of been, well, Issaquah grew after, um, in part because people moved here to live here and work for Boeing. Mm-hmm. I was really interested to look at the 1940 census to find that there were already about a dozen people living in and around Issaquah who worked for Boeing. Oh, wow. Um, so the population growth started trickling in even before... Um, there was an easy transportation w- right. way to get here. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So that, that did start, you know, that, that trend did start a little bit earlier than we mm-hmm. previously thought. Um, so, but with the combination of this increased transportation around 1940, uh, not too much change for a while because everybody was really distracted by World War II. Mm-hmm. That was really taking up a lot of um, everybody's sort of collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but after World War II, some of the, the things that we think about as coming to fruition in the 50s, those trends really started in the late 40s. So you see a lot of people moving out of cities and into suburban areas. Um, Seattle's population after World War II actually dropped. Hmm. And it has just now, within the past decade, come up again to the point that it was before World War II. Really? Yeah. Well, that's hard to believe. Yeah. That's an interesting fact. So, so because, let's see, what is it, about a half a million people live in Seattle now? I think it's more than that. More than that? Maybe yeah. 600,000? So, you, mm-hmm. so, in the, so, you, so, are you saying that in the 50s it was... It was that a half a million people, or no? It was smaller. Well, it it was larger before World War II, and it, during the 1940s, people started moving out. Right. And the city actually shrank in size. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, the population of Seattle mm-hmm. actually was decreased. Right. And then, right. Well, you know, it's taken a while to get back up to to where it was. Right. And so that's that's the thing that's amazing is that it was at such a high rate. And yeah. It's just gotten back in the last ten, like mid 90s or something like that. Or well, whatever. again, and this is mm-hmm. the the automobile made it possible. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of funny now that we are now that we're looking back at this from sixty some years later and mm-hmm. thinking, God, I wish we had better mass transit. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> we kind of did this for ourselves. Yeah, that's but, funny. Um, but yeah, so this was the the shift to um, having a car, mm-hmm. living in the suburbs, having the best of both worlds. You know, having your picket fence mm-hmm. and your golden retriever, mm-hmm. and having a nice place for your family to have space and 
you know, all of this starts sort of folding in with kind of the American dream. Right. So, and there's some, um, there are some materials we have in our collection from the time period that um, the Issaquah Chamber was actually trying to attract people out into the area. Mm -hmm. And so they had these great brochures talking about what a fabulous place Issaquah was and talking about the churches and the schools. And the maps had all these great little cartoons on them with people saying things like, oh, what fresh spring water or (laughs) what clean air or uh, room for homes all around the lake. And, you know, (laughs) little pictures of girls milking cows. And they were just sort of selling this very pastoral, idyllic image. Mm -hmm. And people bought it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after World War II, people started moving out here and buying property Mm -hmm. and um the community began to grow. And it was slow at first. It wasn't really until, I'd say, between the between 1960 and 1970, the population of Issaquah almost tripled. Okay. So that was probably the big decade for people noticing right. change. Right. Um, so a couple of the things that Highway 10 did um, that sort of accelerated future change in Issaquah, mm-hmm. um, it broke apart some of the family farms that were um, in that area. So mm-hmm. Highway 10 followed roughly the path of I-90 today. Mm -hmm. Um, It was smaller and it was narrower, so it curved more and didn't follow the exact footprint. But, but, you know, this was a two-lane highway now, and it was cutting through people's uh, cow pastures. Right. So, and they tried to do some mitigating factors. I think one of the farms had, like, a tunnel under the freeway Mm -hmm. that they would lead the cows through. But, you know, the bottom line is this just made things a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also made the property in this area a little more valuable mm-hmm. as, you know, this, this sort of uh, supply and demand thing starts happening. Right. So. Was there a story about why, and maybe it's just the topography of the fact that Highway 10 and 90 went straight through the middle of the valley instead of maybe trying to hug one of the mountains. I mean, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of political wrangling over the path that the mm-hmm. highway took, mm-hmm. and I don't know the details about it, but I know that there were two or three different plans, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of emotion attached to the different plans because, of course, each plan you know changed somebody else's life. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know as, enough about the details of that, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was it would have been similar. You know, mm-hmm. to the bypass struggle that we had just I can a few imagine. years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what that's what blanked into my head is, is or blinked into my head is mm-hmm. like how was that when that when the, mm-hmm. the be interesting being a fly on the wall during that process. Yeah. But and Seattle you know. has its same stories about mm-hmm. the process of putting you know like I ninety through and mm-hmm. changing a lot of the the um, uh, community where that end of the the mm-hmm. bridge and freeway went through changed things and you know left a lot of people. Uh, it, without a home and having to move to a different area. Right, so, right. So I don't know as much about the details of the wrangling, but mm-hmm. it did, you know, it did start changing people's lives. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the interesting things as we start kind of moving into the period where Issaquah is beginning to develop, um, I'd always looked at the the property value as the, the, um, the carrot that kind of encouraged farmers to sell their property. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we did our oral history project a few years ago, Rob Pickering said some really interesting things about that time period because he was actively farming then. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked a lot about the USDA regulations that were coming into play. This is sort of an era, again, where we're moving from small family farms to big factory farms. Mm-hmm. And so the USDA was putting a 
lot more regulations in place because this starts becoming a food safety thing. Um, right. So you've got big operations that are milking, you know, hundreds or thousands of cows. So you have USDA inspectors coming in and saying things like, well, you know, you've got this open system, but, you know, we don't allow this anymore. You need to take all this out and go to a closed system. So that means putting in all new pipes. All this, like, mm. huge infrastructure change. I think one of the other things was making sure that the, the floor was concrete and had um, vents in, or um, drains in mm-hmm. it. Um, so all these things that seemed ridiculous to small family farmers who'd been doing it the same way for years. Right. Um, and these things just, it just made it a lot harder for them to do what they'd been doing. And of course the idea was this was protecting the American public from whatever, whatever. Um, and from there, of course, you can launch into a whole discussion about local food versus factory farming and industrial farming and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. But, but at the time, but at the time, that was the way the way of the world. It yeah. was it was look, we, we want standards and this, right. that, and the other, and everybody saw it as a good thing. We got right. inspections for the first time. Yeah. But the small farmers got to mm-hmm. pay the price. Yeah. So it was a big shift from. Um, and and that whole time period, a lot of things about food changed. Mm-hmm. People started having access to refrigerators and freezers in their homes. So people started having more choices, you know, where they got their, their mm-hmm. milk and how long they kept it and that kind of thing. So that did continue to encourage the, the dairy farmers mm-hmm. in Issaquah. Not really encourage them. That was, it was, they so had it, fewer and fewer choices. Right. So you were, you, you initially thought it was, it was land the cost of the right. land, but it was yeah. a combination of both. It was both. a combination. Farming was getting harder, and the land was getting more valuable. And so it just made sense for a lot of it. Was just sense. you know, yeah. and we see that a lot. I think in um, contemporary, there's a lot of attention given to um, contemporary farms. I know when the McBride farm up on the plateau was divided um, and sold off. There were a lot of, there was a lot of buzz in the papers about that too. Mm -hmm. And it was just one of those things where the property taxes become too high and it's just not feasible anymore. And a lot of people expressed sadness about Mm -hmm. that, but uh, it's, it's interesting to watch the reaction um, to people, the reactions that people have to change um, and the reactions, the really emotional, visceral reactions that people had to that that farm being sold mm-hmm. off, um, and it's hard as you know, human beings, we don't like change. Right. We like things to stay the same, especially if it's our home and we grew up there. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's the sort of thing where there's no there's no way to solve that particular problem. No change comes no matter change what. Change comes no matter what, and no matter where you're at. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. So that's I think that's what makes our job. Um, challenging and rewarding is figuring out what we can what can we hold on to what can we carry with us into the future what can we show people mm-hmm. um, that will help them understand kind of where Issaquah came from yeah, yeah. So. that's really and it's really important it's really important to know you know where at w- what point was this town like this this and this because yeah. in 30 years from now, who knows what it, who knows what it's going to be like? And, and somebody will look back and say, wow, we were a dairy farm uh-huh. in community at one point. Yeah. That's amazing, yeah. you know, because um, the only remnant will be probably Pickering Barn. Right. will be the only remnant left um, mm-hmm. at that point. So um, we've got – so we're post-World War II, we've, right? Or where are we at? We're post-World War II. So let's maybe talk about – let's maybe emphasize the bridge a little bit. Right. Because I think that was a – I mean, I don't know, but I'm assuming that was a huge deal when the bridge. I'm not 
society was even bigger. Pretty much all of the changes that Highway 10 brought to Issaquah were sort of intensified by Interstate 90. Mm-hmm. So if this was a larger freeway, it was a wider freeway, it took up more space. And when did I-90 come through? Early 1970s. Okay. Um, I can't remember the date specifically, but mm-hmm. I, it's in the 1972, 73, 74 area. Okay. So when the first Lake Washington Bridge was built, mm-hmm. and when was that? 1940. 1940. Um, excuse my ignorance. Which one was first? 520 or I-90? I-90. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 20 came later. Okay. 520 yeah. was, I-90 was first. Yeah. And then that led right right into Highway 10. Mm-hmm. So that was just Highway 10? That was part of the Highway 10 project. Yeah. Okay. So that bridge. that bridge, what was that bridge called at the time? Do you know? It's a, I'm I sorry. I can see I the brochure in my mind. Right. But I can't remember the name. Right. I, can, I think I can see it. I think I've seen that brochure yeah, as well. Yeah. Beautiful you know. blue. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. With the yeah. picture of the bridge on it. I don't remember the okay. name of okay, it. Okay. So that opened in the 40s for Highway 10, which mm-hmm. gave everybody east west access through the Cascades, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. But it was a two lane highway until the 1970s. Right. Okay. One of the things that Highway 10 did for Issaquah was gave it sort of a roadside culture. So if you've ever driven on... Kind of like Route 66. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, not quite that iconic, but Mm -hmm. um, you started seeing little roadside hotels cropping up and Mm -hmm. little uh, burger stands. And, of course, this is when Bohm's got its start. Because Bohm's was right there on on the highway and you had to pass it to go east and west. Mm -hmm. And so this was a high point for people Mm -hmm. traveling from either side of the mountains because you'd stop and you'd get some chocolate. Right. Because mm-hmm. it was this fabulous place and mm-hmm. kind of part of the trip. Was Triple X part of that too? Triple um, X, uh, that actually was, a, it was um, constructed in the 30s, so it was a little before Highway 10. Okay, but it, but it was on Highway 10. Right. I mean, it was part yeah. of that culture as well, yes. but it, was pre, it wasn't built for Highway 10, right. but it would just happened. So at one side of the street, you'd go have lunch, mm-hmm. and then you'd go across, across the highway and go get some chocolates before you, before you hit the mountains or yeah. when you came out of them, right? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty interesting. Um, for just from my person, because I grew up in the Northwest, mm-hmm. I always knew we always would drive by the Triple X. And uh-huh. when I drove by the Triple X, I knew basically it was the last spot. I mean, you know, it was basically it was a it was a mental um, marker for mm-hmm. me because we had family on the east side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of like this mental marker. Oh, we're almost into the mountains. Right. You know, and as a little kid, it just seemed like we'd already been driving for hours. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, even though I wasn't in Issaquah, never, we never really visited Issaquah. We went to Triple X maybe a couple of times. Mm-hmm. We'd pull off the road. But um, it was always, Steve, even though well, I wasn't part of the community, it was iconic in my right. mind as, as just a road, like yeah. you said, that roadside culture of being right there. So The other thing that people tie in together mm-hmm. with that memory mm-hmm. is seeing uh, the parachutes coming down over by the, the Skyport. Right. So mm-hmm. um, this the Skyport was um, a business that basically taught people how to skydive, mm-hmm. and they had a huge presence here. And actually, in 1963, the World um, Parachute Championships were held in Issaquah. Wow, impressive. So, yeah, oh, so of our, our little claims mm-hmm. to fame. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that people remember is mm-hmm. seeing the parachutes and seeing mm-hmm. the people coming down from the airplanes. Mm-hmm. And, and like you, a lot of people that I know who never lived in Issaquah mm-hmm. but lived in the Pacific Northwest as kids, those are their memories, too. Right. Right, yeah, driving through chocolate parachutes. Mm-hmm. That's a sequoia. Yeah, that's so. that's that's interesting. Sorry, I sidetracked you. No, that's fine. You know, but uh, I like sidetracking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
So we already kind of have this this car culture has been developing, mm-hmm. and of course it's developing all over the country. And by the time we get to the the early seventies, um, that's when I ninety came through. Um, so as I was saying, I ninety was pretty much just intensified most of the changes um, that had come through with Highway 10. Mm-hmm. So it was wider, it was more lanes, so it again cut into area farms and took more property than you know than Highway 10 mm-hmm. had. Um, it also was too wide to go underneath the trestle. So today where Highway 18 stretches across I-90, mm-hmm. um, prior to 1974 or so, there was a huge railroad trestle. Um, and that's where the train would go up and then disappear uh, on its way over to, you know, High Point and uh-huh. points east. And mm-hmm. um, it was always a great place for kids to, you know, risk their lives by running across the trestle or right. put pennies out to get squashed mm-hmm. or grease the trestle to see if the train could still get up the, the, uh, the <laughs> ride. Uh, I heard a lot of stories about people hopping the train to mm-hmm. um, to go down to uh, Alexander's Beach, which is on Lake Sammamish. So okay. that that was a very big thing, I think, for kids growing up here, is right. having that the railroad as the backdrop to their childhood. Right. That's yeah, a really yeah. iconic thing. So that... That um, that sort of hooks the loss of the trestle into a lot of people's memories. Mm-hmm. Because if you do, I mean, if you grew up in an active railroad town, that's something that you you hear the trains going by, you hear the whistles in the distance. Right, and you have this of, huge, iconic trestle that mm-hmm. goes, you almost identify your community with that, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and now there's just, there's historical pictures. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... It's interesting how many pictures people took of the the trestle as it was being deconstructed. Oh. This was really mm-hmm. it was a sort of a fascination. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah. yeah. So so that was a big that was a big change, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and then I ninety pretty much just intensified um, mm. all the development because this opened up access a little bit more. It made it a little quicker to get here, mm-hmm. um, and so the the continuing drive to purchase property and develop it just sort of continued mm-hmm. from there right. um, and kind of continued to accelerate. Mm-hmm. So as all this change was happening, of course, at this point, um, like I said, the biggest, the biggest population uh, change um, at that time period was between about 1960 and 1970 mm-hmm. um, when the population more than tripled. So uh, this was a huge transformation for this little tiny town right. and the people living in it who were used to living with you know roughly a thousand other people mm-hmm. that they pretty much knew and mm-hmm. were probably related to in some way if right. we traced all the lines back far right. so suddenly we've got a lot of people moving in from the outside and uh, you might not you might go to a restaurant and you might see a few people there you don't know. And that's a new thing. Right. You know, (laughs) it's hard to think of that now. But if you imagine going Mm -hmm. somewhere and Mm -hmm. you pretty much knew everybody all the time until everybody started moving out here. So, so that started creating a lot of different changes within the community and, um, and a lot of growing pains. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, that was sort of the time period when the Issaquah Historical Society was founded because we started, there were people who were beginning to panic because the town where they'd grown up was changing right. really quickly mm-hmm. and some of it was becoming unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
of course, as this development starts happening, as people start buying up property to develop, a lot of the old structures that were here start disappearing. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're being torn down so that people can build on the land because the land is becoming more valuable than the property. Mm-hmm. So one of the properties that um, that was raised that caused some panic was in 1970, the house that had belonged to Dr. W.E. Gibson was torn down. So... Doc Gibson was this sort of classic character from Issaquah. If you've ever watched, uh, you know, any Old West TV show or Little House on the Prairie or anything like that, you've got this iconic Doc figure. Right. And he's always helpful and he's kind and he's sensible. Well, that was Doc Gibson. That's okay. who he was. Mm-hmm. He moved here probably in the 1870s when it was really um, very much a, a frontier um, and he doctored all kinds of people for all kinds of conditions. I mean, mm-hmm. he sewed back on fingers. He took care of gunshot wounds. He delivered babies. He handled burns. There were so many articles in the Issaquah Press where, you know, the closing line was, and Dr. Gibson showed up and patched the patient up and right. went home kind so, of thing. Yeah, so literally that iconic Very, old yeah. west mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can't pay me, pay me with a chicken type of right. guy. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, and he was known for he was known for being a very good horseman. Um, he was also known as an amateur horticulturist, mm-hmm. um, and he, he and another fellow named P. J. Smith, who again was a you know upstanding citizen landowner, mm-hmm. they kind of took turns being mayor. It was one of those things that, you know, no one really wanted to do it. It right. was like, I, I'm sure if you've gone to any sort of mm-hmm. committee or board meeting mm-hmm. when they're looking for, oh, who wants to head up the committee? And, mm-hmm. You know, suddenly right. everyone's looking at their cell phones very <laughs> intently. So, uh, so Doc Gibson was a stand-up guy, and he and this other fellow kind of took turns being the, being the mayor for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his house was slated to be torn down in 1970, um, and the house did end up getting torn down. Uh, this was not a fancy Victorian mansion because Issaquah just didn't have that much social stratification. Right. But it was a fairly nice house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a leading citizen. And so mm-hmm. this is something that really hit people. Um, and we have to thank um, a, a high school student from that time period who circulated a petition to save the ginkgo tree which is outside, mm-hmm. well, out, it, which is right near what was um, Doc Gibson's house. Oh, so okay. the ginkgo tree was actually planted by Doc Gibson. This was oh. one of his little horticultural experiments that he, that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the house was slated to be torn down, this student circulated a petition, and they saved the tree, which is fabulous. I think it's now it's on the list of Issaquah treasures and yeah. you know, I get lots uh-huh. of interesting questions about it. So mm-hmm. I just I think it's uh I think it's great that that piece of Doc Gibson's hobby is still here for us to mm-hmm. talk about and look at and I'd like to remind kids when we're talking about it that, you know, if a high school student could save this tree, that's something to think about and you know, that your right, that your you can... words and deeds and actions have some impact on yeah. the community. Mm. So um so that was one of the one of the kind of Sad slash happy stories. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that uh, that happened sort of through a similar chain of events, um, there was a house on Front Street that had been converted into a little shop. It was a consignment store called Country Mouse. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, craftspeople and artisans in Issaquah, a lot of women, mm-hmm. would create little consignment things and take them down and sell them, and they would make a little money off of this. So uh, the woman who operated the shop was named Betty Konarski. And when a lot of this, uh, when they were actually, they were going to construct 
um, Safeway, what is now Staples, was originally oh, okay. a Safeway. Oh, okay. And so this store, this house, the Country Mouse, was in front of the Safeway. Um, and the owner went to Marvin Mole and Ruth Mole, who owned a chunk of property. And Marvin Mole had planned on developing another strip mall, like a lot of the other strip malls that were being developed. Mm-hmm. And um, Betty Kanarski and then um, a friend of hers, I can't remember the first name, but her last name was Gray, um, they talked to Marvin Mole and said, you know, I know you want to develop this, this strip mall here, you want to have some shops, but what about this? What about if you took this building that they're going to tear down that's got a history and you move it over here and I can have my shop over here and, you know, we'll save a house, you'll have a shop, it'll be interesting and different. And so this idea evolved and um, they decided to do it. And I've talked to Ruth Mole about this and they really had no idea what they were getting into. (laughs) Because, I mean, when you start moving historic buildings and then trying to maintain them, that's, it's really challenging. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to maintain a historic building. Right. So this became sort of a labor of love. Uh-huh. Um, and all of the buildings, some people don't realize this when they, if they've just moved here mm-hmm. or maybe they've been here a while mm-hmm. and just don't know. But mm-hmm. all of the buildings in Gilman Village, mm-hmm. except one, have their own history um, from somewhere else in the valley. And they mm-hmm. were you know, taken up and relocated. So that was the first house of Gilman the Village. Country, yeah. country Mouse mm-hmm. was the first one. Mm-hmm. And that's still in Gilman Village? Um, the no? building is no longer the Country Mouse, but right. the, the building is in Gilman Village and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's across from the boarding house restaurant. I mm-hmm. don't remember what shop okay. is in it now, but it's... it's and this is just a, a sidebar. Do you do like any kind of walking history in Gilman Village to talk about the, the history of each house or no? Or No, we do history hikes um, mm-hmm. and one of them ends at Gilman Village, okay. so it talks a little bit about, about the Gilman it. Village story. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't really embraced the idea of doing a full Gilman Village tour and just maybe because the story, right. it's hard to tell a story. Right. It's more, each building is sort of a snapshot of someone's life. Right. It's hard to kind of weave it together. Yeah. Yeah. So it is yeah. fun to go through there, especially mm-hmm. with. Did, does, now, I don't know. Does each location have a little history about the building or no? Each, or do they? Yeah. Each of them do. And I know they've got, um. They've got kind of a flyer that has the history of all the buildings that they distribute over Mm -hmm. there. We've also got all the buildings on our uh, soon-to-be-reintroduced-to-the-world website. Mm -hmm. Um, So within, probably by the time this is on the air, we'll have that back up. Oh, great. And go read the histories Mm -hmm. of any of the And it's a good resource for any kind of Issaquah history, or at least get you pointed in the right direction to go go to your history website. Yeah. What's that that website? Issaquahhistory.org. Oh, okay. (laughs) Get a little plug in there. It's good. Yeah. That's good. So so now I-90's been built. Mm -hmm. We've tripled population, so we're what, uh, around 2,100, 3,000? Well, in about, in 1970, the population was 4,313. Okay. How many streetlights do we have? I don't know about that. I think we were... Uh, just funny. Just, yeah. just an aside. In, inside city parlance, it was always how many streetlights was how big the city... Right. I yeah. worked here when there was one streetlight. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere in my office, I've got a, um, a chronology because that is one way to you know. That's how people... About. You know, if you talk to old, old, you know, older residents, yeah. they say, I remember when there was one streetlight yeah. in this town. Well, and when I tell people that I grew up in a town that was a lot like Issaquah... Mm-hmm only about 20 years behind because 
we just got our first streetlight about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. So, you know, it is, <laughs> right. it is a way of gauging the right. age, uh, mm-hmm. sort of maturity of a community. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. Mm-hmm. So, or at least it's busyness. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1970, we had 4,000 people. So it's mm-hmm. basically officially a bedroom community of Seattle. So yeah. a lot of those 4,000, a good percentage now have moved in. They work in Seattle or maybe Renton or mm-hmm. Bellevue and something like that. And they do a daily commute. So it's, we're basically a suburb now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then from the 70s on, is that just basically suburban growth at that point? A lot of it is. And I think it can become difficult to talk about recent history in mm-hmm. some ways because we aren't really sure yet what it means. Right. You know? Um, yeah. So we're just starting now to kind of get a sense of what Issaquah was like in the 80s and the 90s because mm-hmm. we're starting to have a little more perspective mm-hmm. to look back on it. Um, but I think really since... The 1970s, a lot of the story of Issaquah has been growth. Just growth. Uh, More people coming in Mm -hmm. um, and the city and its residents kind of trying to figure out what is that going to mean for Issaquah. Mm -hmm. Um, And the story is still, it's unwritten. Oh, yeah. It's written every day. It's written every day. Mm -hmm. So so the, the, the interesting thing, because we've kind of went from the inception to kind of where we are now, is that is that all the characters and there's so many characters and stories mm-hmm. inside this time period, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. and I'd love to get into some of those, mm-hmm. you know, at some point. Um, but I guess I just I just felt like th- this would be a good idea to, to get 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 a general information out yeah. there. Get it kind of how how is a quadro, how it grew from a coal mining town to basically suburban America, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and. I'd love to go back and talk about some of those unique characters, like the Dr. Gibsons of yeah. the world and um, the first female mayor, yeah. um, um, and some of the some of those things, some of those characters that really created the fabric of it. And some of the some of the families, you know, the Pickerings. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, why was that barn saved? You right. Know? Yeah. Um, what happened to the Skyport? Yeah, you know, whole. you know, um, when did para, is paragliding part because of the skyport? Was that all part and parcel of together? You know, because that's an iconic part that's mm-hmm. maybe held over. So there's so much history yeah. in this little community, and I think that that um, people just don't realize that you know all these towns start from somewhere. Yeah, you know, and that's really a lot of what we want to do is is be able to provide people with a sense of connection to Issaquah's past because mm-hmm. there's still so many remnants of it and signs and signals if you know where to look for it. Right. Um, right. Things like for me, uh, a few years ago when the um, uh, Issaquah was voting on a bag ban, mm-hmm. and there were a, a number of activists who had come out from Seattle and and. Uh, you know, wave their signs around. And I just remember thinking at the time, with a his- historical perspective, thinking, I really can't think of a time in the last 120 years when people from Seattle came out to tell Issaquans what to do, and Issaquans were excited about that. <laughs> you know, that was so, one of the things that occurred to me as right, I was around. With a her. complete sea change on that. Yeah. You know, back then it would have been, this is our little town, this is right. our little corner of the world. Uh-huh. You stay out of it. Yeah. Right? You know, where you're Well, being. I. I'm not sure how many people felt welcome of that or not. Maybe it was my own personal. <laughs> right. I took a bit of uh, I took a bit of umbrage on Issaquah's behalf because I thought, huh, Issaquah doesn't need somebody from Seattle to come tell them what to do. So, uh, <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. Great. It's really interesting to look at at the at the relationship between mm-hmm. um, Issaquah and Seattle and, mm-hmm. and sort of the attitude that Seattle newspapers had when they were writing about Issaquah and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, 
and and that's sort of a universal thing i think i've yeah. talked to other people who grew up in small towns and there's always the assumption that you know small town people maybe probably aren't as sophisticated and probably aren't as smart as people in the city and right yeah, yeah of course you know the com- country bumpkins right. and that sort of right. thing oh we're going to go into the big city type of mentality yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's not true. It's not no, true. It's not at all. Well, and one of my favorite instances of that happening was uh, uh, in the late 30s when the Issaquah Alpine Dairymen were playing mm-hmm. a football team. And these guys were 165 pounds and under. They wow. were scrappy and they mm-hmm. worked full time all week. And mm-hmm. this is what they did on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And somebody from Seattle, they'd won the championship something like mm-hmm. six years in a row. And someone from Seattle called the the manager of the Alpines and said, yeah, well, you know, we're going to big talk. We're going to come over and clean your clocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they lost. They didn't even score on the Alpine. Oh, so, nice. So those are kind of things where you, you know, right. you feel a little community pride. Yeah, saying, definitely. Yeah, well, it's a told, told Seattle where to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Well, you know, um, this is great. I want to have you back because I want to talk about things like the Alpine football team, yeah. like the sports in our community, the, the, the early politics in our community, you know, um, and some of the cast of characters that helped develop who we are today. Yeah. Um, if people want to know more about Issaquah history, how do they go about it? What's the best way to do it? best place to start out is probably uh, our website at issaquahhistory.org. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want just a nice basic introduction to Issaquah's past, uh, you can spend a little time at the Gilman Town Hall Museum. That's especially great for kids. It's got a bunch of different hands-on activities, and that'll give you kind of a nice sense of uh, Issaquah, Issaquah History 101. Great, great. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for coming again. Look forward to the next time, and we'll get we'll dig a little deeper in some of these um, interesting facts and, um, and historical happenings here in Issaquah. Sounds great. Let me bring my shovel. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been Uniquely Issaquah. Thanks for joining us, and stay unique.